Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud, episode 59, with me, your host, Jackie Shea. I had been raised with with such a coherent belief about Lyme, which was like that one, you could only get it in, in New England, and two, if you treated it with antibiotics, you know, if you got it within the 10-day window and you treated it with antibiotics, you would be good to go. I have since uh, revised my position. <laughs> I believe that if you want to overcome illness and thrive in life, then self-advocacy and hopeful connection through shared experience are necessary ingredients. Healing Out Loud is designed to bring you just that, inspiring, relatable voices that have made it through their darkest days to ultimate triumph by advocating for themselves and engaging with empowering self-care tools. I want you to start healing today. If you like what you hear and want more, there are three ways you can stay in touch with me. Follow me on Instagram at Jackie. that's S-H-E-A-J-A-C-K-I-E. Join my newsletter at JackieShay.com or contact me directly through JackieShay.com and I will see how I can support you and meet your specific needs. If you missed the last episode with uh, Cindy Kennedy on healing Lyme by starting with your gut and applying a sense of humor, check it out at JackieShay.com slash 58. In just a moment, we're going to meet my recurring guest, Eva Hagberg-Fisher. Eva Hagberg-Fisher is one of my dearest friends and a frequent guest, is an author, educator, and media strategist. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Wallpaper, Dwell, Wired, Tin House, Guernica, and more. How to Be Loved About the Life-Saving Power of Friendship is her debut memoir and was called Stunning by the New York Times, Dazzling by Publishers Weekly, and Surprisingly Funny by Most readers. It's the beginning of Lyme Disease Awareness Month and I wanted to have a chat with somebody who watched me battle Lyme and has multiple friends with Lyme. Eva and I are going to dive into what Lyme disease myths are and and how we both previously bought into these myths, how I afforded my treatment, what turned us into woo-woo patients, and helpful mind tricks to accept where you're at and move through it. Hi, Eva. Hi, Jackie. Good morning. Happy to see you. Oh, I'm so happy to see you. Sorry, it's 7.45 for you. That's okay. <laughs> you are a true icon of wellness. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it used to be, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about Lyme disease today mm-hmm. because it's Lyme Disease Awareness Month and I was pretty into having somebody on who does not have Lyme disease but knows a lot of people with it and gets to we get to kind of talk about different um, perceptions from a patient to a non-patient of Lyme, even though you're a patient of many others, many other things. Um, but, you know, in talking about that, I used to not sleep, as you know. So I certainly, if I did fall asleep, was not going to get out of bed at any certain time. So I'd be in bed till if I fell asleep at six, I'd stay in bed till I woke up again, which would likely be at like eight because I just didn't sleep. But it's such a treat for me today and it never stops feeling luxurious that I can kind of get up whenever I want to in the morning because I sleep at night. Yeah, those little things to me are always so astonishing that they make me cry. You know, like I'll just be like walking around New York City and then I'll be like, oh, I have to go to an appointment and then I'll go to the appointment. And I'm like, all I ever wanted to do was be able to say, I will be at this appointment. 
tomorrow or in two days or in a week. And I think both of us for a couple of years just like didn't have the quote unquote luxury of ever being able to rely on anything about our bodies. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's how I was. So I don't know if you, I think, I think you knew this only when we texted a little bit about the podcast, but I spent every summer in like the vector epicenter of Lyme disease, Block Island, Rhode Island. No, my grandfather was a, um, very aggressive deer killer, uh, because he knew as a MD that, uh, deer had ticks and ticks had Lyme. And so, you know, a lot of summer visitors were like, oh my God, but I love to see the deer. Like the deer are so nice. And he was like, murder all the deer. Like the deer are, are vectors for Lyme disease. And 35, 40 years ago, when he was talking about it, Lyme was still like this very rare thing that you only really got if you went to like Nantucket or whatever. Um, or Lyme. So I remember... Or, right, or actual Lyme, which I drive by sometimes and I always think of you. And I remember when you got diagnosed, you were one of the, well, I didn't know you when you got diagnosed, but when we met and I found out that you had Lyme, I remember being like, that's not a thing that a Californian can get. Like real talk, I was sure in the absence of any information or evidence that you probably didn't actually have Lyme because I had been raised with, with such a coherent belief about Lyme, which was like that one, you could only get it in, in New England. And two, if you treated it with antibiotics, you know, if you got it within the 10 day window and you treated it with antibiotics, you would be good to go. I have since uh, revised my position. <laughs> but same. That you had Lyme. But yeah, I'm really curious to hear about how it was for you to, to be a Californian diagnosed with a like New England obscure disease. Totally, totally. It's so good. I I love that when we met, you were like, she doesn't have Lyme disease. (laughs) Meanwhile, I was like in Indonesia and doing ozone therapy. That's amazing. I don't know if you know the details of this part of the story, but I was in the woods on a photo shoot November 17th, rolling around in piles of leaves in a dress. When I left that day, because I grew up on the north in the Northeast also, so I grew up in New York City, and we would go to Connecticut a lot because I had a lot of family in Connecticut, and every time we went to Connecticut, we would do tick checks. So we'd come home, we'd comb through the hair, my mother would look at my scalp, we'd, you know, get stripped down in the bathroom before a shower and, like, just get the whole, the whole check. So I knew... I knew about ticks and I knew they were serious enough to do tick checks and make sure you get them off your body. I left the woods that day from that photo shoot and thought to myself, first thought, I got in the car, first thought was, oh, I should check for ticks. Immediately followed by, there are no ticks in Southern California. (laughs) And then I did not check. I did not take a shower that night. I went to bed. I had the full 24 hours plus. The tick was engorged, I'm sure, fell off. That's what happens. And I ended up getting my rash 10 days later, and I didn't start antibiotics for a month into infection. But like, I just so happened to land at an urgent care doctor who said, have you been in the woods lately? After he looked at my rash. 
because I had the rashes all over my body. It was awesome. And he was like, he was like, yeah, I think it could be Lyme disease. And like, how lucky, because you know what? A lot of other doctors in Los Angeles think that Lyme disease is not in Southern California. And then I go and I tell people all the time, like, I got bit here, you know? And some people are like, yeah, I know, either me too, or yeah, I know my kid's school does tick checks with them after they leave the park, like I know it exists. And then some other people are like, here in Southern California? How's it possible? <laughs> and as it turns out, ticks are in all 50 states, including Hawaii. Has that always been the case or is this related to climate change? Hawaii isn't related to climate change. That That's just gotten there somehow. But has it always been the case? No, I don't think so. I think they've just moved. Like I think mm. it was a northeast I don't know. That's a really good question. I think it was very much a Northeast thing and then also Midwest. And then I think it just like moved across the country. And, you know, in in Colorado, there's like different, there's different co-infections with ticks. So there's like the Rixetia illness. There's the, the fever, um, the fever one that I can't think of, but like all these different places have a different illness attached to them. Right? Like there's a Southeast one that's really intense, and there's a Texas and a Colorado one that's really intense. And then, so I'm with you. Do you identify as having Lyme or as having had Lyme? I identify as having had Lyme. Ooh. I know. It's, I love that. It's very, <laughs> I know, it's very, um, <laughs> I know. It, a lot of people are like, but you always have Lyme once you have Lyme. And I'm just like, that's so crazy because Lyme is a bacteria and bacteria dies. Like, why are we operating under this assumption that you can't cure Lyme? And also, what a oh, what a fucked up thing to put out there. Like, we don't have, first of all, we don't really have enough research about it. it it's a disease that was like technically discovered in the 70s. Of course you can cure Lyme. Like, you can cure a lot of things, you know? And when you put this idea out there that it's incurable, it, like, I think it resigns people to the fact that you're just always going to have it. There's not that much you can do, which I couldn't resign to just because I was so sick. And I was like, I can't can't live like this. It needs to be banished from my body. I remember that being a difference in how you and I were coping with our very – so when we met, you were in Indonesia doing – ozone therapy for Lyme. And I was in Sedona doing sleeping in a tent treatment for mold toxicity, which ended up being mast cell activation syndrome. But I was sort of like in the middle of a lot of different diagnostic uh, kind of nightmare scenarios. And I remember that it was helpful for me to be like, maybe this is my life forever. Like, like as a coping mechanism, because I spent so much time because our experiences were different. And I started my like illness experience with really extreme situations. I mean, I had like a cyst in my brain that ruptured. I needed surgery. There was discussion about cancer. I needed, you know, heart surgery. Like it was all very, um, non amorphous. And I had always soothed myself by being like, this will end. And then I remember being really sick in this like weird way. And trying to get better, trying to get better, trying to get better, tracking time and being like, maybe I'll be better next week. Maybe I'll be better next month. And then finally being like, okay, 
what if this is it? And I remember talking to you about it and you were like, that is the least helpful thing. But I need, but I think you had given yourself like two years. Like I, I, maybe I am misremembering this, but I feel like I was like, okay, how do I live? This is forever. And you were like, how do I live with this is for two years. Can you talk more about that sort of like, I don't know, making, making your future incremental in some way to deal with having something like Lyme? That's a, is such a, that's such a good, that's such a good question. I also love that you're like now interviewing me. (laughs) That's such a good question. And I feel like, so this coach, Steve Chandler, and he's my lineage of coaching, and he talks about everything being an end of itself, right? And like, life being an end in itself, like not having some thing that you're just like trudging towards, right? And and I think that there is some really deep power in like not waiting to heal, right? What you're talking about to me is this this idea like, oh, I might be resigned to this forever. And there's something that's so freeing about that because you're no longer like waiting for the day that you're better and just like getting through each day till then, right? You can actually start to live life. Like I remember, I don't remember when it was, it was before Indonesia, but I was just so obsessed with getting better. And one of my friends, Natasha, she's actually been on this podcast. She was like, okay, what if, she was like, I don't think this will be you. And it turned out to be me, but she was like, I don't think this will be you. (laughs) But what if, This goes on for another two years, which is probably where you're getting the two-year thing from. And I, it just put, it just paused me. And I thought, you know, if I really accepted that this was going to be another two years, I would do more. Like I would do more life stuff. And I would stop being so obsessed with like the supplement and the herb and the getting better, getting better, getting better. And it was so freeing for me to start thinking like, okay, I'm resigned to two years. So then what? Well, then I'm going to pick up my camera and start taking a picture every day because otherwise I'm wasting a lot of time being obsessed with getting better and it's not going to happen for a while. So I really think that there's genius to either way. You know, like I think that there there is genius to like going, this might be life forever. And what if it is? Right. And really coming into some sort of acceptance about that and around that. And look, Eva, it really worked for you, I think. Like having that way really helps you in what I saw to surrender and come into acceptance. And for me, it was more about like, (laughs) okay, I can deal with this for another two years. And if I put those two years in front of me, I'm not really looking to the end of those two years because it's too far away you know, but it's not so far away that I'd rather just die right now. Because the thing that happens with Lyme disease is that it's so neurological that depression and anxiety are so intense. And for me, at the same time with Lyme, I couldn't work. Like I was too sick to do so much, to do so much, right? Like I couldn't walk 
far. I couldn't far being like, you know, 10 minutes. I couldn't um, hold my own head up a lot of days. I couldn't sleep. I was deeply suicidal a lot of the time. I couldn't work and engage with the work the way I wanted to. Like everything was so hard that the idea of like, okay, what if this is just my life was like, well, then I would rather die. And I would rather die right now because this is not a life. So I couldn't do that. But I could do two years. <laughs> does that answer that question? Sure does. <laughs> so one of the things that um, that I always – so I read, uh, you know, I read a lot of like illness memoirs and I listen to podcasts. And I always want to know, and my editor told me this in the book, where does the money come from? How did you support yourself for the two years that you couldn't work and you were – Well, you sent me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> that was really not a fishing expedition. I've forgotten about that. <laughs> I know. I know. I trust that. <laughs> I mean, you and I both did fundraisers, right? So mm -hmm. I talked to a lot of people with Lyme and most, a lot of them are totally strapped for cash. Lyme is super expensive, as is mast cell activation syndrome, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think anything that is like diagnostically controversial is very expensive. Right. And then also just like having to buy everything over the counter also adds yeah. up. Yeah. I mean, Eva, I did, I did not have family support, as you know. So, I mean, I did, uh, my mother did give me $2,000 once to go to Indonesia, right? So I did have that but besides that I had like no family support so how it came was really magically like right so the first thing I did was I worked I kept working <laughs> and I was waitressing at the time and I'd show up and I would not really be able to walk <laughs> and my knees would be in so much pain so I'd show up and I'd be too weak my friend Gina would like feed me because I'd be too weak to hold a cup to my mouth so she'd like make a smoothie for me and then someone would hold it up to my mouth and I'd like drink out of the straw and I'd be like, I don't know how I'm going to waitress. <laughs> and then I'd be at work and I'd get my shift covered. Like I'd need to call in people. And somebody I worked with, his name was Luciano, he would cover it like every time. It would be like five minutes till my shift started. Someone's feeding me a smoothie and I'm going, actually, I can't do it again. Right. So I kept really trying there. And then I think I did unemployment. So I did, I got to do this like really smart thing where I did unemployment first. And then I did state short term disability. And I did food stamps. And I booked like one print ad a month magically because I'm an actress. And so I was booking these this like one job a month that would cover something like it would cover rent or it would cover, you know, rent and food or what it was just like magic each month, right? You really money really comes to those who need it. And I kind of really believe that. And then I did this fundraiser because then it was like I couldn't I couldn't heal with like the bare minimum. That's what ended up happening was like I could get by with the bare minimum, but I couldn't I couldn't go any further than that. So I did a fundraiser and you, uh, it went on for like two years. <laughs> the fundraiser just stayed open for like two years. And I think in the end, between two different fundraisers, I raised like $20,000. Um, and then friends like you sent me like $500 through Venmo. If I was like, oh, today's so hard, you'd be like, here's $500. <laughs> and it was such a gift. And it's like, where does the money come from? I don't know. God. 
Mm-hmm. People, friends, money comes from being vulnerable and asking for it. That's the one thing I, I run into with a lot of people. And I think you run into it too because we do know some of the same people. But like people needing money and not asking for it. Like you asked. Yeah. You you got brave and asked for it. Were you afraid to do a fundraiser? No, but I was so strung out on terror when I did it because I was like still – I was in like – neurosurgeon diagnostic hell. And I was just like, this is, this is fine. Like I was in the, I was in the phase that I sort of like long for now where I was like, literally nothing matters besides staying alive. And like all of my insecurity was stripped away. All of my fear was stripped away. Like I was just like, I'm literally going to die. I don't want to die with $10,000 of like medical debt. Um, let me do a fundraiser that has like a picture of me drinking barium because I had to do like PET scans and drink, you know, it was just like, I mean, I was so kind of hyper during my first, I think year of really serious illness, which was not yet chronic illness. It was just like acute, serious kind of, I think we all thought like really like one-off extraordinary intensity. And so I think there was also a lot more kind of appetite to help because it was so clearly like, I mean, I think I, ironically, the idea that the disease had an endpoint or the disease process had an endpoint made it a lot easier for me to be like, I'm asking for very short-term help. I'm asking for a very specific amount. It's to cover these very specific things. And people were so sort of panicked by the fact that they thought I was going to die, that they were like, here is $50. It's a really good point because I think a lot of people struggle with donating to Lyme or mold toxicity or, you know, mast cell or like various autoimmune disorders, et cetera, et cetera, because, because of that, because a lot of times people don't necessarily agree with the treatments a person is doing and they don't like, I, I, I used to um, work for a family and I had Lyme and they had had a woman in their life who died of Lyme, which is actually a really good point too. Like, can you die of Lyme? The answer is yes. I'm so sorry. Most people don't, but yes, the answer is yes. And this woman had died of Lyme and they didn't tell me that for a while. They were like, oh, we knew somebody with Lyme. (laughs) And I was like, oh, cool. Um, How's she doing? And they were like, she's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then like- Asterisk, like on a different plane. She's okay. She's just not here anymore. (laughs) And then, like, a year later, they were like, yeah, you know, she died, like, a while ago, and we didn't want to tell you. And um, the guy was like, you know, I she was doing a fundraiser. I just really didn't agree with the treatments she was doing at the end, and these people had a lot of money, and he was like, and I just didn't um, – I didn't donate. I didn't give her money because, like, I didn't believe in the hyperbaric chamber and this and that and the other thing, and I, my heart really broke for this woman, not to say that, like, oh, she would have been saved if he – you know, gave her some money because that's not true either. But my heart broke for the, I don't know, the the being just so unseen and misunderstood. Like the thing with Lyme is that we do try everything, right? Like I tried antibiotics for a year. I wanted them to work desperately. Of course I wanted them to work. I didn't want to have to fucking go to Indonesia for ozone therapy. I know it sounds like, oh, but you got to go to Indonesia. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was horrible and, you know, I didn't want to travel 
to anywhere to to do anything. Like I just wanted to take antibiotics in my life to go back to normal. I didn't want to change my diet. <laughs> like I didn't want to I didn't want to learn about essential oils. I didn't want to d- dig deep into spirituality. I didn't want to get reiki. Like I've become this person that enjoys all these things, but you and I really relate on like that was not something I was ever interested in. Yeah, I was just going to say it's so funny because if I if I like followed you on Instagram now not knowing anything, I'd be like, "Oh, Jackie loves doing outdoor activities, drinking her matcha, (laughs) not drinking coffee. Like it's probably some inherent thing, right? I think it's easy to sort of assume like, oh, you probably like, you know, arrive like this. And I'm just so curious to hear a little bit more about like, I sometimes forget because I met you during like ozone therapy experimental times mm-hmm. that that your vibe a hundred percent when you got diagnosed seemed to be like, oh, I have Lyme. Weird. Great. I'll take the antibiotics and I'll be good to go in like a month or two. And can you just talk about like how did you make the shift from that into everything that you just described that you actually in either enjoy doing actively or are like in acceptance of needing to do. Yeah, I think I do enjoy it. I do. I mean, actually, I know I do enjoy it. So it is funny. It's you. I mean, okay. Do you enjoy not drinking coffee? Um, yes, I want to not drink coffee because I enjoy the effects of not drinking coffee. Wow. Yeah. Do you enjoy not eating garbage? Well, yeah, because at this point, garbage actually tastes like garbage. Fascinating. Well, because once you're once I'm away from it for long enough, like, yeah. Um, do you know Janine Roth, the author of Women, Food, and yeah. God? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She talks about how like we need to allow ourselves to eat what we want, right? And mm-hmm. she'll she'll be like, <clears throat> she'll be like, I want people to be like end of diet culture, like eat what you want, eat what you want. You need to you need to trust your body. And, you know, somebody, she was on some show and I think it was like Regis or something. And he was like, he was like, well, then I want to eat a Sunday every day. And she was like, yeah, I would really challenge you to check in with yourself about like if that's really what you want. And I'm such a big believer in the word want, right? Like whatever I'm doing, I clearly want to be doing because I'm doing it. I When I quit smoking when I was for the for one of the times when I was 18, I was like hanging out with a dorm with a person in my dorm and I was like, God, I want a cigarette. I want a cigarette so bad. And she was like, no, you don't. If you wanted a cigarette, you would go have a cigarette. (laughs) And it was so mind blowing for me because I was like, oh, you're absolutely right. Like there's no reason for me to not have it other than the fact that I actually in the end don't want it. I think that's true for me with coffee and with with some garbage food, not all. Like I still eat my fair share of potato chips. (laughs) Oh, yes. I had some in your honor the other day. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was like, Jackie would love these. But how did you – How did I get there? Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I was – there were some things I was into. Like, you know, I was – I had not had a drink in many years and I hadn't had a cigarette in many years. And I was into healthy eating. I just didn't know that healthy – like my version of healthy was very different than it is now. <laughs> I was also into being outdoors and exercising to to a, to a to a point where it was like um really distracting. Like I was just like I'll just exercise all day and not do anything else. 
Not because I had body image stuff, but because I needed distraction and adrenaline. Uh, Yeah, my life, like when I got diagnosed, just similar to what you said at the beginning of this conversation was that I was like, oh, you take antibiotics and then it goes away. Like that's the way Lyme disease works. You just need antibiotics. And when I got diagnosed, I thought to myself, the first things I thought were, oh, I'm so relieved I don't have bed bugs or psoriasis. Because those were the two things I was afraid. I was really afraid that my rashes were indicative of bed bugs or psoriasis. And I was like, oh, how great. I don't have to deal with those things. I have Lyme disease. So all I need to do is take some antibiotics and then I get better. And I'm a kid, like I was treated with antibiotics my entire life. I don't know if you if you were like that, but I, I was just sick all the time. I had this immune disorder. You're shaking your head. No, that wasn't you. You have like a strong... Like you, you have these illnesses, but you have like a strong system, right? I oh, my system is like, is like killer. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, my system is, is like, I remember my, my doctor, he was like, aside from all the like life-threatening stuff you have going on, you're very healthy. Like my baseline <laughs> is like, I am, I am an ox, you know? Right. And right. then like, I layer some stuff on top of it. Whereas I think your system is pretty weak. Has always like, been. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, like my, my childhood was also, I was, you know, in like a really, really trauma, traumatic environment. And I was also breathing in cigarette smoke 24 seven, mold 24 seven, dust 24 seven. And like, and I was just literally in fight or flight for like the first eight years of my life nonstop. So like all of those things helped to weaken my immune system for sure. But I think I was also born with a weak immune system because I was just like on antibiotics since I'm a baby. So, you know, I had been, I had spent my life like going to the doctor, getting antibiotics and getting better ish. Like sometimes I'd end up in the hospital mysteriously one time specifically where it was like nothing's working we don't know what's wrong and then so I was like yeah I just want these antibiotics they're gonna work blah 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 I was totally committed to that it was fine I didn't want to do anything else and then about a year went by (laughs) of being on every kind of different antibiotic I could think of and getting sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker and I kept trying right? Like I tried for, I think, 10 and a half months. I was like, okay, let's try this cocktail of five different antibiotics this time. Okay, let's try this cocktail. Okay, let's do an intramuscular injection. Like I just wanted it to work. And um, 10 and a half months in, I think that something that Norman Cousins talks about in the anatomy of an illness is like what a patient needs to heal is a robust will to live. And oh my God, do I have a robust will to live, right? Like at the end of the day, I needed to be healthy because I needed life. And I realized that like alive was very much a feeling and it was my favorite feeling and I didn't want to exist without feeling alive. And so when I was faced against in November of 2018, no, that was last year. (laughs) In November of 2014, when I was up against getting a pick line, which is, uh, you know, having something inserted into you, into your arm so that you can do IV antibiotics daily. And then the antibiotics basically just dump onto your heart. So I was faced with getting this pick line or with going totally natural. (laughs) My body kind of led the way. My body was rejecting antibiotics. I watched myself weaken 
at the thought of taking antibiotics. Like I felt my body and my soul and my spirit weaken at the thought of taking antibiotics. And I thought like, I'm just going to go full out. And, you know, I also looked at the people around me who got well and were as well as I wanted to be. And I saw that what they did was go natural. Like, I I don't, I'm not anti-antibiotics by any means. You know that about me. Like, if antibiotics work for a person, I'm like, great, great, get there, get there faster. (laughs) I love that for people. But the truth is, is that the people that I know that have gotten well, super well, they have all gone naturally or at least like, you know, 70 natural 30 antibiotics, 70%, 30%. So I did it. And, um, you know, I think I was just willing to do anything to get well. And that's when I started doing all the crazy shit. Yes, I'll do bioenergetic intolerance elimination. I had to believe. The other thing Norman Cousins talks about is like the placebo effect and and really just believing things work, right? There's been so much research done on the placebo effect. It's real, right? And it works. And I think that I was just so sick that I just believed, Eva, that everything was going to work. You know, like I did not... I believed celery juice was going to work. I believed taking eggs out was going to work. I believed coffee enemas were going to work. I believed Reiki worked. I believed massage worked. Like I just, I believed all of it because I needed to. And, And how I became the person that I am today is that in the end, it did all work. You know, like in the end, it did heal me. So how could I pop? And antibiotics didn't. And you know what's funny? I totally believed the antibiotics were going to work too. I was positive. I had every fiber in my being. Like, you want to talk the law of attraction? I knew in my gut, I knew in my fucking solar plexus that antibiotics were going to work for me. And they didn't. (laughs) So I don't know. You tell me. I'm just like, I don't know. I don't need to do research. Like I did research on my body and it worked. (laughs) How did you become this way? You're not like me. I mean, I still still eat garbage and drink coffee just for the record. Um, But you also also do like fucking healing. I do magic. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I just did it yesterday. I do literal magic. Um, Kind of a similar thing where I was just like, you know... I'm so glad that I just have like a regular thing that can be treated with like a regular, you know, and I was like, thank God it's just like surgery and healing from surgery and whatever. And then it just all got so amorphous. I mean, I was just desperate. You know, I was like desperate for anything. I'd had an experience where I also haven't had a drink in a while. And I'd, and I'd sort of come to feel, you know, when I first stopped drinking, I was like, well, this is my willpower. This is, you know, me being super strong. And and then over the years, I'd sort of come to have a different approach, which was more like, there's something sort of mystical going on here. You know, the fact that like, I, a person who wants more than anything in the world to feel total annihilation and, and oblivion, instead does not, like is is sort of miraculous. So like that experience had opened the door a little bit. And then it was really just desperation. I mean, it was like, okay, I'm sleeping in a fucking tent. And the reason that I was in the tent, you know, it was so logical, like the way that I got there, which was like, I'm having this physiological reaction to environments. And it seems like it's mold. That's plausible. Okay. Now I'm reacting to more and more and more environments. Okay. The only environment I don't react to is outside. So I guess I'll sleep outside. Like I didn't go from like 
you know, it wasn't like I lived in an apartment and I went to the doctor and then I slept in a tent. Like my, my descent into tent living and then my embrace of, of sort of alternative methods was super gradual. And I had people around me who had watched me get really sick and had offered resources like bioenergetic desensitization to me. And I was like, sorry, you're obviously like out to lunch. I don't need that. And then, you know, I came like crawling to them and just being like, can you take me to your person? Like I will try literally anything. And I think similarly, you know, sometimes I think 99% of my healing is placebo. And I think we've read all the same articles and the research that's coming out now is fascinating. And, you know, people will, will undergo sham back surgeries and they'll improve, you know, I mean, like they'll, they'll like go under anesthesia. They'll like do everything, but they won't actually get the surgery, but they'll get better. Uh And so, you know, I was sitting yesterday Skyping with somebody who was testing my body's reaction to a glass of water that I was holding that had been out in my room to, to absorb the energies of whatever was in the room. She's testing my body by touching her own hand and looking at me. And I was like, she a hundred percent knows what is in the water in the air here. And a hundred percent, the breathing exercise that I'm going to do now is going to alleviate my allergic response. And like, I slept better last night. <laughs> I don't feel as allergic today. You know, is that elaborate placebo? Is it because she's a witch? I don't care anymore. I think that's maybe something that I think we, I don't want to speak for you, but, but I, I feel very strongly like I just don't care anymore what the source of the healing is as long as I get it. And I think that it took for me just being leveled by illness to be like, actually my, like, cause my pride wants to be like, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about my auras. Mm. And then my experience is like, when my aura is bigger, <laughs> I feel better. Okay. I guess we're just doing this. And I think also like each of us have personalities that are sort of like sharp and funny. And so we can sort of like slide into it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like I can be like, listen, shrug emoji. I get this looks weird, but what am I going to do? I have a better life now. You know, I'm not going to throw it away. Yeah, totally. It's such a good, it's such a it's such a good point that like I don't care. I don't really research unless it's like not unless it's like invasive somehow. You know, unless what I'm thinking about taking or doing is like, you know, potentially damaging. I don't research. I don't really even try to understand what's happening, like the bioenergetic thing that you're talking about, right? It's like people are always like, "So explain that to me." And I'm like, "I don't mm-hmm. know. Like you align some shit." <laughs> yeah. Something to do with meridians, but also like who the cares? person who I, yeah, exactly. You just want to get better, right? So like go mm-hmm. try to get better. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's such, that's so true for, for me. I want to ask you like now that you have some people in your life with, that have had Lyme or have Lyme, what do you think of Lyme now? Like what's your what's what happens in your head around Lyme disease when people are like, I have Lyme disease. What do you think? So my first response is always like, ah, all right, we'll see. <laughs> and, uh, which is obviously some protective distancing mechanism because like I was also bit by a tick when I was 10 and like, what if I actually, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it, it's all, um, but my grandmother has had Lyme three times and her neck is totally fucked. I mean, she, has basically like all the bones in her cervical spine have like crumbled into nothing. Mm. And she's like, this is because of Lyme. 
Like she's like, I believe in long-term Lyme. I believe in the chronic effects of Lyme. I believe in like post-treat, whatever, like she's calling it. She's basically like the problems in my neck are because I had Lyme three times. And so I do have that sort of, it's like, I have these reference points. Like I have you, I have my grandmother, I have other people that I've known that have had Lyme. And so after my initial like, Ooh, mm, well, because honestly the fear is that if somebody that I see has chronic Lyme and they got it by just living a similar life to the one that I lived, then like, oh no, I might get Lyme. So my response is very similar to the people who are like, oh, you have cancer, did you smoke? Like I'm, I'm trying to differentiate so that I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And then once I sort of get over that and I'm able to like see a person as their own person with their own Lyme experience, then I'm just like, yeah, I really hope antibiotics work for this person. And and then if they don't, then I think, you know, I really hope that this person has somebody like Jackie to talk to. And and then I have sort of no further opinions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I always hope antibiotics work for people too. Mm-hmm. I really do. Really, really, really do. I don't want people to go through that experience. You know, another thing, Eva, is that a lot of people come to me with Lyme and mast cell. I'm just wondering um, if you have any, before we we go, because we're going to wrap up in just a minute, but before we go, if you have any, like, any, you know, here's how you can diagnose mast cell or like, here's, here's what you should do to find out if you do have it. If you have any mm-hmm. tips for the people that have, that are being diagnosed with Lyme and mast cell, just because that's so on the rise. Yeah. I mean, I think there is definitely like a tendency to sort of have like hot, hot new diagnoses. Um, and so I think like, you know, as much as it's painful, like moving really slowly towards diagnoses, I think is sort of helpful, like excluding the kind of more obvious things. The way that I was ultimately diagnosed was with, was with like a clinical diagnosis. So I had all the blood tests and they were all negative. And then my doctor was like, okay, something is wrong. So we'll just treat you. And if you get better, then it's a confirmation. And if you don't, then it's a disconfirmation. So I had to wait for like seven weeks for everything to work and for me to start getting better. I think also like really simple stuff like tracking symptoms, you know? So it's like a mast cell symptom is kind of like an extreme over response to a stimulus without having an allergy present, right? So it's like, it would be helpful for me to like get allergy tested and be like, okay, I'm allergic to, you know, I'm allergic to like trees and dust mites and grass. I'm actually not allergic to mold, but if I go into a moldy building, I feel really, really, really terrible. That's a clue that I can use to be like, there's some other reactive process. And mass activation syndrome, the word active, I mean, it's all about a reactive process happening in the body. So if it's like my symptoms wax and wane, whereas I think, I mean, I know Lyme has flares, but I think it seemed a little bit like you were more consistently feeling like garbage. And I would have these like weird, like hours where I felt great. And then I would suddenly feel terrible Mm -hmm. and I would trace it back and be like, oh, it's because I walked, I walked into a different environment or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like slow, methodical symptom tracking. And that comes with trying. That comes with supplements too, right? Yeah. Like I feel like a lot of mast cell people actually struggle with vitamin B. Oh, I cannot take vitamin B. Oh my God. It is it's horrible. Yeah. I, I see feel that. Terrible if yeah. I take it. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks for sharing that. Any last things you want to say to anyone who might be Lyme? in a Lyme, in a bad Lyme spell today? Oh, you know, it's, it's like everything changes. 
everything passes, whatever version that you're in right now, it will change. I don't know what that change will look like, but I remember feeling so hopeless and like I was just like stuck in some sort of in-between non-life. And similarly to you, like I used a different strategy to get there, but the thing that helped me was being like, this, this is, this is my life and it will change at some point, maybe. And I can like change my relationship to it. Maybe. I don't know. It's also just terrible. I'm really sorry. (laughs) You're suffering. It's just also awful. Like worst. And that's, that's, I think important for me to let myself feel, you know, it was important for me to let myself feel as a sick person. Yeah. Thanks Eva. Oh, thank you. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at Jackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform, and follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through JackieShay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shea Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.